The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 14th chapter. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near listening to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until they find it? When they have found it, they lay it on on their shoulders and rejoice. And when they come home, they call together friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous who need no repentance." What person, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of the Lord. I invite you all to be seated. So there, there are a couple of things as we, as we come into this, this week's texts that, that I notice is interesting. All of them kind of deal with the idea of sin and repentance. They deal with the idea of being lost and found. They go back to that idea in our confession. We are captive to sin and cannot free ourselves. And in fact, I think in some ways our, uh, our psalmist David, King David, it seems like he's in competition with Paul here. Because David is saying, against you only have I sinned, O Lord, and goes on to talk about how grievous he feels his sins were. And let me tell you, in this particular case, I don't think that David's particularly exaggerating, because this was written at a time that was, I don't know, about 1000 AD, at the height of his reign as the king. It was after the events with Bathsheba, who he was taken with, with whom he had an affair, whose husband and maybe the rest of his unit he had killed so that they could cover it up. And so David had a lot of good reason to feel pretty guilty about this. And then Paul, who says, you know, and as a sinner, God showed me mercy. And not only does Paul say he was a sinner, he says, I was chief among sinners, foremost among sinners. And it reminds me, as a, as a child growing up in the South, when I used to occasionally go to church with my friends, and I'd, I'd go to one of those Southern Baptist churches, and I'm not talking about like Southern, I'm talking about Southern Baptist, where someone would stand up in front of the youth and say, let me tell you about the time when Jesus came into my heart and saved me. I was doing drugs, and I was sleeping with people, and I was doing all of these bad things, and for the next 20 minutes, They would talk about all the bad things that they did. And then they'd spend the last minute and a half saying, but Jesus saved me. And all of a sudden, my life was so much better. It's almost like people speak at those events just so they can brag about all the things that they used to do. You know, and and in some ways, I wonder whether I always wonder whether Paul was more of a Lutheran or more more of a Baptist in that way. And we, we have these texts that talk about human failings, that talk about sin, that talk about where does our sin originate. And part of what I find so compelling is because there are times where in my own mind, in my own heart, in my own experience, the things that I am able to remember are only the things that I feel guilty about. 
And there are also moments where, you know, I probably could spend 20 minutes talking about all the things I'm glad I don't do anymore. But there are also moments, and I think they're the healthier moments for me, when what I feel is instead of the need to tell the story about all those things I used to do, I, I feel a real keen attachment to the joy of knowing that this idea of new life, this idea of freedom from that captivity to sin, and not just sin, but the history of sin that I have in my life, isn't something that I've chosen, as much as I try to do the right thing, but it's something that God chooses for me. And especially when we get into the Gospel of Luke, when we talk about the word repentance, when we talk about the word redemption, when we talk about God's grace, God's grace isn't something that people spend a whole lot of time choosing. We don't hear in the Gospel of Luke many stories of people choosing Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, as we used to hear in that Southern Baptist church occasionally. But we hear stories of people who are looking for lost things and go and find them as an analog for the way that God reaches into our lives in those days, in those times, in those moments, in those actions, in those words, in those relationships where we feel lost and pulls us out of it and turns us around. The word repent means to turn aside, to turn away from, to turn from the thing that is harming us toward the thing that is healing us. And one of the wonderful things about the book of Luke is in the book of Luke, we see that that turning aside doesn't necessarily come from us. It comes from what God is doing through us and in us. And even though Paul is rejoicing and telling his story of why he was chief among sinners, I think for Paul, the reason that story becomes something that is worth telling for him is the grace that he experienced after that. Because there was a moment where he realized that even though what he was doing was zealous for the Lord and all the rest of that stuff, it's miserable work to always be after people. It's miserable work to always try to be correcting people. It is miserable work to always be worrying about what other people are doing rather than worrying about how it is that my own heart might be more in order so that through the love that I share with other people, I'm able to, to demonstrate something that looks more like order and by experiencing the love of people, other people can model for me what that love looks like. It's that mutuality of relationship that becomes important. And I think even for David, as he's lamenting his sin, identifies in this something that is very important. Against you only have I sinned. Now remember, I named some of the people that David sinned against. David sinned against Bathsheba because she was married to someone else and he was the king. It's not like she probably had a whole lot of choice in that. You know, David sinned against her husband. David sinned against the eunuch that he sent into a hopeless battle who died on that account. David sinned against his nation by misallocating and misusing resources that moved people and stuff around. You know, in every action that he did, especially with as much power he had, it was this cascading kind of landslide of guilt and shame and regret and bad faith actions. And yet, against you only have I sinned. At the end of the day, what we recognize about how we perceive what our brokenness, what our sinfulness is, because God is creating us, because God loves us, because as with all who someone loves, when the people we love are hurt, we hurt for them. 
We hurt with them. We hurt on their account. And so when David says, against you only have I sinned, what we recognize is what we do to each other is, is something that we do to somebody who is beloved of God. And that is hard stuff. And then we have the Old Testament lesson, which is absolutely one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. Because here is God who has delivered God's people from slavery in Egypt. God, who as soon as the people got out, maybe they left around 9 o'clock and all of a sudden it was noon and they started to grumble. God, did you take us out of Egypt just so we could starve in this lunch? And so God provides them with manna in the wilderness so that they can eat every day. And they say, oh God, you provided manna. We have something that resembles but isn't quite bread. We don't know what it is, but it sustains us. But at least back in Egypt, we had some meat from the flesh pots. And so God provides quail. And then they said, oh God, at least back in Egypt, we had water. To, you know, I mean, like every time we turn around, the people are being delivered from one thing to another. And God is providing and they are still complaining. I'm glad nobody ever complains now because we as a culture and as a species have grown beyond this, right? And, and so here is God who has done all these things for the people of Israel. Here is God who is leading them from their slavery into the promised land as they take this pit stop at the mountain where God is up on, is on the mountain with Moses and God is inscribing upon these tablets the Ten Commandments. And the first of which is, I am the Lord your God, who delivered you out of the hands of slavery. On account of this, you will have no other gods before me. And the people at the base of the mountain, what do they do? We're free from slavery. We're not very hungry. Let's have a party. So far, this is reasonable. Let's take our jewelry and melt it all down and worship another god. Okay, so it becomes a little less reasonable. And so there's God in the act of delivering them, sees them melting down their jewelry and, and worshiping somebody else. And this is why I find this so fascinating, so interesting, is God's anger is kindled. I, I think not even so much because they're worshiping someone else, but because God loves these people so much so that God has moved them from one place to another. And here they are, even as, he is, as God is rescuing them, enjoying and celebrating somebody else. I don't care who you, who you are, apparently even God, that, that kind of disregard, that kind of disrespect hurts when it's somebody we love. And so God does something that is very much in our nature too. God looks at Moses and says, look what your people are doing. Can you believe what your people are doing? I am going to erase your people and I'm going to create new people and maybe they'll be grateful. You know, it's kind of like in, in families where you say, look what your kid did. You know, it's both of our child, right? Or, you know, look what your husband or wife did. But Moses does something that is also very much within human nature, within the, the nature of God. Moses reminds us and reminds God of what faithfulness looks like. In the same way that God reminds us what faithfulness looks like in so many different ways. And Moses said, my people? No, I didn't create these people. I didn't make these people. I didn't, I didn't cut a covenant with Abraham promising descendants as numerous as the stars. I didn't deliver these people from slavery. 
I didn't bring these people here. You did. These are your people, God. This is your covenant, God. This is your love, God. And here we have the point at which it becomes, I think, one of the most poignant lines in the entirety of Scripture. God changes God's mind. God turns aside from the thing that might be destructive and turns toward the thing that will bring life. God repents from what God was planning and turns toward giving life instead to those people against whom God's anger was kindled. And so we get to the gospel today. Jesus was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And it's in the book of Luke that Jesus says at one point, I didn't come for those who are well. I came for those who were in need of a doctor. Those who are well have no need for a doctor. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. And so here is Jesus spending time with the very people he identifies as the one he's come for. The ones who need that new life. The ones who need that repentance. The ones who need that new chance. The ones who need that love. The ones who have heard in so many different ways because they were sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and all the rest. That somehow they are not worthy of being with the good people. And people do as people do. And got jealous because they saw Jesus hanging out with people who weren't them. Wait a minute. We're, we're the good people. Why isn't Jesus hanging out with us? Why is he spending all this time with those people? And in part, Jesus' answer was something along the lines of, well, they're the fun ones. It wasn't quite that, though. It was also the parable of the lost sheep. Which of you having a hundred sheep wouldn't go seeking the one that was lost and be so happy that they found the one that they rejoiced over that one, even though they still had 99 who hadn't wandered off? And this is what we forget sometimes as the people who are trying to be good people. Just because that one sheep is being rejoiced over, just because that one sheep is receiving grace and attention, that doesn't mean the 99 aren't loved and valued and desire and have a place made for us as well. It means that there is joy when someone who feels lost and broken and cast out all of a sudden feels included. And it's a joy into which we are being invited. Or the woman who overturns her house looking for the coin that she lost. Now, if any of the, anyone who's ever been in college or, or who's worked a retail job knows what it's like at the end of a month to be looking for that coin under the couch and, and anywhere you might find it. And the joy that comes from knowing I have now found enough to eat from the 99 cent menu. It's, we've been there. And so it's not just this idea of being metaphorical. It's not that you're not grateful that your other bills are paid for. It's not that you're not grateful for what you've already had. It's that in the moment of our need, when we find that thing that will help us fill that need, all of a sudden new life comes. And so we hear in these stories, not just this idea of, you know, it's not about how bad I was, it's about the fact that God is bringing me back. We hear in these stories, not just that there is joy in heaven and among everyone else when something that was lost is found and someone who was cast out now has a place, but it's a reminder of magnitude. 
When we are the ones who are feeling lost, when we are the ones who are feeling broken, when we are the ones who, who are feeling ashamed, when we are the ones who are feeling cast out, when we are the ones who are feeling left out, when we are the ones who are feeling heartbroken because we've lost people we love, when we are the people who are feeling absolutely put down and laid down and set aside, and then someone comes to us and they bring us from where we are to where all of us are. That is the joy in which we share. And that is the joy that Jesus reveals to us in the reign of God. It's the joy that comes not just to those who have always, always seemed to have their lives together, even though all of our lives are messy when you really look inside. It is the joy of embracing people who don't have the wherewithal to make their lives not look messy. It's the joy of embracing those people who have been set apart and set aside and cast out because there is great joy for them in being brought in. It's the joy that we share in that becomes infectious in our heart because we are not the ones even who are giving the gift, but God is giving the gift to us of whoever is bringing that kind of joy at finding this kind of community and knowing that they are a part of it. It's a joy that causes within us a change as well. As long as we can avoid grumbling because they didn't always used to be here. It's a, it's a wonderful and challenging message because it's something that runs in every community that's ever existed. And it's a beautiful idea because it's something into which we are invited. The joy of helping people. Feel like they have a place among us. No matter how long they've been here, no matter where they come from, no matter what they bring, we have a place not because of what we've done, but because of who and whose we are. And one, one last thing is that, uh, you know, it was always designed to be temporary that the people of Israel spent time in the wilderness. Now, granted, it was 40 years. This is enough for a few generations to pass. Part of the reasoning for that is because you had to let the generation that had grown up in slavery give way to the generation who had never known it so that when they came to this new land, they could have an imagination of what it might be like to have free, and that becomes their memory. But we've told this story now for 3,000 years. You know, King David lived in 1,000 B.C., and... You know, the exodus happened before that. And, and this is a reminder to us that sometimes temporary things become permanent. And I give to you our cross. The, the cross is made of beautiful wood. And I hear the story. I wasn't here, but it was told to me that when we moved into this building, because the wood of the cross was awfully close in color to the wood of its background, that this outline that we have around the cross, which I always assumed was some sort of aluminum or some sort of like permanent material that was designed to be there because it really highlighted it. This artistic compliment and emphasis, it's made out of some sort of sticky foam paper and was only designed to be there for like a month or something. And it's been here for, I don't know, Jesus was a kid here, I guess. So it's been here for a minute now. And so it's a word of joy and also a word of compass. Of, of a, a word of caution that sometimes the things we do as temporary become a lot more permanent than we anticipate.
And so it matters what we do in the short term. So in the short term, as we continue to discern who are we as a people, who are we as families, who are we as a congregation, who is it that God is calling us to be for the people who God loves, remember that what we do in the short term sometimes can become a lot more permanent than what we ever intend. And also rejoice in knowing that it's not just that word of caution, but that we show love that lasts a lot longer than we might ever expect. And the good news that comes to us from God is that at the end of the day, and in the same way, what we do can hurt. What we do can heal so much more. The people who God loves, ourselves included. Amen.